the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Maupin engineering today's program. Well, I had t- intended to start the week off on Monday, sitting behind the mic and, well, talking. But I was um, caring for my mother. She turned 92 Late uh, last year, she has pneumonia, although we didn't know that. She's been very sick for the last uh, short while and um, arranged to see her doctor midday. I had been trying to reach the doctor most of the morning, finally got a call back. Can you be here by one twenty? I was certain I could get her to the appointment, get back here, do the show. I was prepared. I'd been here working throughout the morning. Um, but we ended up being sent to the emergency room where her doctor predicted she would be admitted for pneumonia. Well, we went to the emergency room, and um, it took much longer than we anticipated. She was seen almost right away for a series of tests, but it ended up we sat in the lobby for about seven hours waiting to be seen by a doctor to tell us what her fate would be, whether or not she would be admitted or if she would be able to return home with antibiotics. It turned out that she <coughs> excuse me, was able to return home with antibiotics. And I have to tell you, um, there were few, few staff people, few doctors, space was limited, but the crowd of people in the, um, in the waiting area, many of whom had waited for hours and hours were cheerful, friendly, patient, generous. And when we finally got back to see the doctor, he was very apologetic. We're really, um, backlogged. We're having some difficulty to have the opportunity to say, this is an exercise in patience. We know that you're working hard. And we are grateful that you're here. We're grateful that you're seeing our, but just to see the relief on his face. Um, a lot of these folks in uh, the medical field are working incredibly hard with too few resources that might include too few people who are working. And uh, so it, as long as it um, took us to get in and out as tiring and exhausting, really, for my mom, we were able to go home. Um, we were discharged at about 830 after having been there, as I mentioned, for six or seven hours. Uh, went home. Um, the pharmacies were all closed by then. So early this morning, I was able to get her prescription. She's on her uh, her antibiotics and on the road. To, we're praying to recovery. It's been very difficult for her. She's had a very guttural cough now for weeks, and that has exhausted her. Um, I have a bit of a cough myself. I haven't seen a doctor. I know that I don't have COVID. I've had this cough now for, well, since November so I'm going to try to see a doctor sometime this week as well to see what's uh, what's going on with me. But I'm just grateful that my mom is home. She's recovering, but uh, exhausted. So that's why I wasn't here yesterday. I had the whole whole show figured out. And we were anticipating featuring Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church and a conversation he and I had several years ago on the subject of revival. I wanted to set that up because it was a great conversation that uh, he, as you probably now know, um, had been praying for and uh, asking God for revival in our community. And he has studied what what is the contour of a 
what's the history of a revival? And so we had talked about that some time ago and wanted to revive that and give it a proper uh, introduction. But I wasn't here, of course, to do that. So I hope you had the opportunity to listen in on that conversation. And if you didn't, sometimes if the show starts out, you know, ah, this is uh, content I've heard before. Maybe you tuned out. Let me encourage you to go to the podcast because uh, hearing what uh, Pastor Allen had to say on the subject, I've already heard from some listeners, was extremely encouraging. In view of so much of what we discuss about our culture and the direction that we're going, which so often is the wrong direction. It's not that people aren't well-intentioned. They're just misled in so many cases. And we pray for them. We hope for good leaders and good decisions and a better direction. Uh, but we also cry out for revival. And so if you didn't have an opportunity to hear that conversation, which is as timely today as it was when we had it a few years ago, let me encourage you to go to the podcast and you can listen in. So all of that to say, I'm glad to be back here today. And my mother is on the mend. However, if you think about it, if you just say a little word of prayer for her, she's 92 and she has made the decision, and this is a conscious decision she has made, to be cheerful, to be grateful, to be patient. Um, and she has lived that out. Uh, this last season has been very difficult for her, but she's sticking to her guns. She wants to honor God in her latter years, and I'm so grateful for her example. Uh, if you think of it, if you just utter a word of prayer for her, that she would recover. We're praying that the Lord would allow Dan and I to walk her home from her residence in our home um, that's what we've asked for from the very beginning. She has lived with us now for 20 plus years. And uh, now in her 92nd year, it's become clear that uh, her needs are increasing and that will require us to be uh, available more to provide more services for her. And so we're praying, Lord, give us clear direction on how to not just warehouse her, provide her a place to eat and sleep, but how to keep her life uh, joyful to give her things to look forward to, to spend time in meaningful conversation and fellowship, to spend time with her family, the things that are most meaningful to her. And that that requires um, missing out. I often think of that phrase, fear of missing out. I made the decision years ago, and it's borne out, that I'm going to miss out on a lot of things. I'm going to miss out on some things that I would do if we weren't, if we hadn't made this commitment. But what I'm doing now in my home with my mother is far more important, I think, than most of what I've done in my public life. I mean, having a microphone and a radio show, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have. But I have to tell you, I think God is far more interested in how I treat my mother, how I speak to her, how I manage when I'm feeling exhausted. And so often I feel exhausted. It's the end of the day and I need to ramp up to to be with her um, what my attitude is, what I say, what I do. Um, those are the things that I think are most important to him. So I am endeavoring to be faithful to the end, not just in my public life, but in those private moments when I just as soon hop in the car and drive off and not come back because I just, it's tough to imagine another day um, adding extra assignment. Um, but I have to also say that God has been gracious in every moment when I have been completely overwhelmed or uncertain about what to do. He has given me a burst of energy that's allowed me to carry through with what needs to be done. He's given me wisdom with what a decision needs to be made. Even the appointment with the doctor, she had been so sick over the weekend and I wasn't sure what to do. 
calling the doctor, being persistent, making the appointment. And while it ended up being a long day, she has a diagnosis and is on the mend. So God is gracious that when we make those commitments, he'll give us what we need to actually keep them. And I'm seeing seeing moment by moment um, his grace, the power of his Holy Spirit, uh, bearing the fruit of the spirit so that I can live well with my mother through the remainder of her day. So I am so grateful uh, for the opportunity that he has given. Well, coming up for the remainder of the program, we'll certainly take a look at some of the day's headlines and also share a conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. No reason to hide standing for Christ in a collapsing culture. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We want to help you get healthier in this new year with our Healthy You, Healthy Family contest, where you could win a grand prize valued at $5,000. That includes a one-year gym fitness club membership for you and your family, up to four members total, $2,000 worth of fitness equipment of your choice, a $500 Whole Foods gift card, a $500 gift card for fitness exercise clothing, and a package from Kim Dolan Leto that includes a signed copy of her latest book, Fit God's Way. You can enter once daily between now through the four, the 19th rather of February and complete optional bonus activities to earn additional entries. Plan to get healthier this year with our Healthy You, Healthy Family contest. Enter to win at kpdq.com. Sam, I don't think you and I can, um, can enter to win. We're just going to have to do it on our own. Man. Well, Oregon's newly sworn-in Democrat governor, Tina Kotek, said Monday at her inauguration that her first order of business will be tackling homelessness as she unveils several measures intended to address one of the state's most pressing issues. In her inaugural address at the state capitol in Salem, she said she will declare a homeless state of emergency and sign an executive order to increase housing construction on her first full day in office. She also proposed a $130 million emergency investment to help unsheltered people move off the streets. Imagine an an Oregon where no one has to live in a tent on the sidewalk, she said. That's an Oregon worth fighting for. And today is a new beginning, end quote. Actually, remember that Oregon from some time back. Governor Kotek uh, delivered the inaugural address, saying our state's response must meet the urgency of the humanitarian crisis we are facing. I'm signing an executive order that will address the underlying challenge facing our state. We need more housing. My executive order will establish 36,000 new homes per year. Well, Oregon, as you know, has struggled for years to address a housing shortage and interwoven homelessness. Addiction, mental health crises, its homeless population has increased by more than 22 percent. That's just since 2020, according to figures from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. It also has the highest drug addiction rate of any state and ranks last in access to mental health treatment. That's according to federal data from a 2021 national survey on drug use and health. Well, Governor Kotek also pledged to unite Oregonians after a bitterly fought gubernatorial race, the tightest in a decade, in which Republicans sought to break the Democrats' dominance of the state. She said she plans to visit every county in Oregon during her first year in office. Governing is about serving Oregonians, all Oregonians, she said, adding that her personal promise will be to strengthen connections across the state, end quote. Well, in a letter to Kotek, Oregon's House Republican Caucus congratulated her and said it hoped the governor's office and legislature can coexist for the benefit of all Oregonians. As exemplified by a trying campaign for both the executive and legislative branches, it is clear that the partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans provides no benefit to the constituents that elected us, the letter read. 
Governor Kotek said her first executive order will set the housing construction target. Her proposed uh, $130 million emergency investment will aim to help unsheltered people move off the streets within a year. She asked lawmakers to act with urgency and said she hopes to build on investment uh, with a larger, more comprehensive housing and homelessness package during the legislative session. Well, some things you need to know about Oregon's 2023 legislative session. Oregon's 82nd Legislative Assembly is about to get underway, kicking off a nearly six-month legislative session that aims to tackle some of the state's biggest ongoing challenges. One of the biggest changes in Salem this year is the arrival of a new governor. Tina Kotek was sworn in, as I mentioned, on the 9th, the same day lawmakers gathered to be sworn in for the new session. But there are leadership changes in the works in the legislature as well. Some of the key things to know... Oregon uh, excuse me, alternates between 35-day and 160-day legislative sessions, with the longer ones taking place in odd-numbered calendar years. The long sessions were originally the only sessions, but Oregonians passed a constitutional amendment to add the off-year short session in 2010. Well, this year's Legislative Assembly convenes uh, on Monday for swearing-in, as mentioned, uh, bill introductions and formal committee assignments. The planned House committee assignments have already been announced. Legislative session date starts on the 17th of January. The Oregon Constitution gives the long session a hard deadline of June the 25th to wrap up. Although an early finish is allowed, last year's short session became even shorter. when Lawmakers adjourned four days ahead of schedule. One can only hope and pray for the same this time around with the long session. Well, it's budget season as well, so hold on to your wallets. Uh, Oregon operates on a two-year budget cycle, which means the long legislative sessions are the ones in which the governor proposes a budget for the next biennium. In this case, July 2023 through June of 2025. And lawmakers adjust it and adopt a final version. That will take up much of the uh, oxygen in the legislative session. This year, Oregon legislators uh, will need to grapple with lower projected revenue for the next cycle following the current windfall period. Republicans appointed to state economic forecast reports this year as a warning that lawmakers should prepare to tighten their belts, while Democrats have touted the state budget reserves as a sign that Oregon can weather an economic downturn. Also, Democrats don't have super majorities. They retained their majorities in November in the election in November, but Republicans gained a few seats enough that Democrats no longer have a three fifths majority that the Oregon Constitution requires to pass revenue bills. So any tax legislation this year would need support from at least a couple of Republicans. The loss of the supermajority doesn't change the math on the issue of legislative walkouts because there's a higher two-thirds majority requirement to achieve a quorum and overcome a walkout. And Democrats didn't have those numbers even before November. However, voters did just approve Measure 113, which disqualifies lawmakers with more than 10 unexcused absences from holding office in the following session. Remains to be seen whether there will be any walkouts this year or whether the new rules will impact lawmakers tactics. Well, there are leadership changes, as is always the case. The House had a leadership shakeup a year ago when the former House Speaker Tina Kotek, former Republican leader Christine Drazen, uh, both resigned from their seats to focus on their campaigns for governor. But 2023 won't see any big changes from where things landed back then. The Speaker's gavel passed to Representative Dan Rayfield and Representative Vicki Breeze Iverson took over the House Republican leadership. Representative Julie Fahey also became House Democratic leader. Those three lawmakers are slated to remain in charge this year. 
Well, the big change for 2023 is the retirement of Senate President Peter Courtney. Democrats have picked Senator Rob Wagner, a Democrat out of Lake Oswego, to succeed him, although it'll take a majority vote in the Senate to make it official. Senator Kate Lieber from Beaverton uh, will be taking over as minority, rather majority leader, and Senator Tim Knope will uh, continue as Republican leader. And it's back to being fully in person. Legislative committees will return to being fully in person this year after three years of pandemic era virtual meetings. Although people signed up to testify, will still have the options to do so remotely. It'll also still be possible to tune in remotely. Committee hearings and floor sessions, whether virtual or in person, are streamed live on the Oregon legislature's website and later made available as archived video, which can be very useful on issues that you care about. So that is the legislative session set to begin in Oregon on the 17th. Well, meanwhile, authorities in El Paso tore down migrant encampments under cover of darkness and dispatched hundreds of migrants across the border to Mexico ahead of President Biden's uh, visit on Sunday to the overwhelmed border town. Encampments near the downtown bus station and the Sacred Heart Church, which operates a shelter, were dismantled by local authorities as the city prepared to host President Biden's first visit to the southern border. First ever. Six busloads of uh, Those who had been living in the area with mostly Venezuelan migrants were spotted crossing a downtown bridge to Juarez, the frontier city in Mexico, on Saturday as police escorted dozens more to a pedestrian crossing. The president's official officials rather created a um, an illusion so the president and the press could pretend everything at the border is under control as the president dropped by yesterday. I'm reminded of Gregor Saylor's book titled The Potemkin Village. It's a book about how governments create illusions and deceptions. And it seems that that certainly was one for the photo op that took place yesterday. Meanwhile, senators from both parties traveled to the embattled southern border this week to get a firsthand look at the raging migrant crisis at the southern border just days after the president himself toured the area. Senators Kirsten Sinema and John Cornyn um, led a bipartisan delegation to both Texas and Arizona on Monday and Tuesday to see the ongoing border crisis with lawmakers hoping it would open up possible solutions back in Washington. Cinema, in remarks during the trip, blamed a repeated failure by administration after administration to manage this risk. She went on to say that the aim was for the delegation to work together by putting partisanship aside, listening to local folks on the ground who were doing the work and ensuring we're all working together to find solutions, end quote. The delegation, which also included Senators Mark Kelly, Tom Tillis, uh, North Carolina of North Carolina, James Langford, Chris Coons, Jerry Moran and Chris Murphy were present when authorities came across two Chinese nationals attempting to cross illegally into the United States from the southern border. One senator said, uh, told Fox News, rather, that the incident was a demonstration of the global nature of smuggling at the border. People wonder what Chinese nationals are doing coming across the southern border. Well, the fact of the matter is these are international human smuggling organizations, criminal enterprises who, for the right amount of money, will smuggle you from anywhere in the world. (coughs) Excuse me. Did you give me the time? Am I up? Okay, we need to take a quick break. That's good. I need to cough just a little. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And the government will be on his shoulders. Mm. Long for that day. We're talking about some of the top headlines of the day. Also coming up later in the program... Dr. Erwin Lutzer, author of No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing 
culture. That's coming up. Well, Texas, uh, the Texas House uh, passed its new rules package 220 to 213 on Monday night, despite concerns among several Republicans about concessions that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had made to a group of 20 GOP holdouts in the bid for his speakership. Well, Texas GOP Representative Tony Gonzalez voted with the Democrats against the measure, while the Senate has 44 standing rules that carry over from one Congress to the next. The House has to adopt a rules package every Congress to lay out how the lower chamber is going to operate. Well, just days after McCarthy clinched the uh, speakership following four days and 15 rounds of voting, he was left to once again try to rally the support of his party to pass the rules package. Republicans can afford very few defections with their razor thin majority. Makes one wonder how is he going to lead uh, once all of this is behind him? Well, the package includes just several of a slate of concessions that McCarthy made in an effort to win support for his speakership bid from the Republican holdouts. Many of those uh, compromises were made orally rather than having been explicitly written into the rules package. Among the concessions made in the package is a requirement to provide 72 hours of notice before a vote on new legislation to allow members to have more time to review bills before they reach the floor. The rules package also restores the momentum the motion to vacate, which allows just one member of the House to call a vote to remove McCarthy from his role as speaker. Wow. Republican Representative Don Bacon told CNN that the motion to vacate is worrisome to him. I think if it uh, gets abused, we have the ability to change it. So we're uh, we're going to let people uh, let's um, test the waters here for a while. But if it gets abused, I hear some people may then um, see changes coming. Well, he sort of said it awkwardly. Anyway, Bacon said he lobbied to raise the threshold to 30 members to call for such a vote. But McCarthy ultimately agreed to one member in a capitulation to the GOP rebels. He may come to regret that decision. The package also reinstates the uh, Holman rule, allowing lawmakers to amend appropriations legislation to reduce uh, lawmakers salaries, fire federal employees and cut programs. The rules package details the formation of a House oversight subcommittee for investigating the origins of COVID-19 pandemic and the U.S. government's involvement in gain-of-function research. Gonzalez had warned for days that he planned to vote against the rules package because of a reported agreement uh, by McCarthy to vote on a 10-year budget that would cap spending at fiscal year 2022 levels, effectively reducing defense spending by about 10 percent. However, the proposal is not included in the rules package itself. The package instead offered a first uh, chance for Republicans to express concern for the perceived lack of transparency in the negotiations. Uh, uh In his negotiations with the Republican defectors, McCarthy also committed to removing metal detectors from the House chambers and ending proxy voting. House Freedom Caucus members are reportedly set to receive three of the nine seats on the House Rules Committee as part of the compromise as well. McCarthy also agreed to vote individually on 12 appropriations bills instead of one uh, on one massive omnibus spending bill, which is actually a good thing, and to hold a vote on legislation on uh, on term limits for members of Congress. Now, whether or not they can actually pull that off, uh, the appropriations bills, all um, all of them, one at a time, remains to be seen, but it's in our best interest if they can pull that one off. Well, let's see. I won't even go over that. I'll just, I'll move on. Well, House Republicans are set to vote on a bill that would abolish the Internal Revenue Service and introduce a national consumption tax to replace the existing national income tax scheme. 
Well, don't get too excited. It's not likely to succeed. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to put the Fair Tax Act on the floor as one of the number of concessions he made to House Freedom Caucus members last week in a bid to secure the speakership. The bill was introduced by Representative Buddy Carter on Wednesday and has also received the support of Republican Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Bob Good of Virginia, and Ralph Norman of South Carolina. Co-sponsoring this Georgia-made legislation, was uh, my first act as a member of Congress and is, fittingly, the first bill I am introducing in the 118th Congress, Representative Carter said in a press release. Instead of adding 87,000 new agents to weaponize the IRS against small business owners and middle America, this bill will eliminate the need for the department entirely by simplifying the tax code with provisions that work for the American people and encourage growth and innovation. Armed, unelected bureaucrats should not have more power over your paycheck than you do, end quote. The announcement comes uh, following Monday's House vote, which saw Republicans pass a bill to curb the $80 billion earmarked for the IRS over the coming decade. And although the legislation will assuredly fail in the Democrat-controlled Senate, the symbolic gesture drew strong criticism from the Office of Management and Budget. With their first economic legislation of the new Congress, House Republicans are making clear that their top economic priority is to allow the rich and multi-billion dollar corporations to skip out on their taxes. Now, that's the scenario, but we know that there aren't enough uh, multi-billionaires and rich to cover all that these um, uh, IRS agents, the 87,000 of them, were um, tasked with doing, and it would trickle down to the rest of us. Well, fellow bill co-sponsor South Carolina Republican Representative Jeff Duncan highlighted the IRS's continued strain on everyday Americans, saying as a former small business owner, I understand the unnecessary burden our failing income tax system has on Americans. The Fair Tax Act eliminates the tax code, replaces the income tax with a sales tax and abolishes the abusive Internal Revenue Service. If enacted, this will invigorate the American taxpayer, help more Americans achieve the American dream. End quote. Representative Carter's press release nodded to former Georgia Representative John Linder being a driving force behind eliminating all personal and corporate income taxes, the death tax, gift taxes and the payroll tax. So it'll be an interesting debate. It will probably be most useful in the next election, the presidential election, in that it's not likely to pass muster in the Senate and is certainly not going to be signed on to by the sitting president. But it will be a debate worth uh, worth having. House Republicans on Monday passed a rules package that included the formation of a select committee on the coronavirus pandemic to investigate the origins of COVID-19 and other aspects of the pandemic. The committee will have the power to investigate wide ranging issues, including vaccine development, COVID related school closures and the five trillion dollars in emergency federal aid that's been approved since the start of the pandemic. There's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I believe every American, regardless of their political ideology, would like to know the truth. That's a quote from Representative James Comer, Republican out of Kentucky, the incoming chair of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Well, the committee plans to investigate whether the virus originated in a lab leak in Wuhan, China, or from a Wuhan market. Several virology labs are located in Wuhan, where the pandemic began, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where bat coronaviruses were studied. A team of experts from 10 countries released a report on behalf of the World Health Organization in March of 21, saying the virus was likely spread from an animal to humans, calling the theory that the virus was released in a lab accident extremely unlikely. The researchers said they would not recommend further investigation. 
Now, why they wouldn't recommend further investigation to confirm their view? Unclear. However, Peter Ben um, Emberek, the World Health Organization food safety and animal diseases expert who led the organization's investigation into the origins of the novel coronavirus, said in a Danish documentary months later that the Chinese colleagues influenced the um, presentation of the team's findings. The, in The Virus Mystery, he says China's researchers in the group fought against connecting the origins of the pandemic to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in a report detailing the investigation. So this committee will be looking into that. And uh, Dr. Fauci will not be um, in the uh, federal government working in his capacity during this period. So it'll be interesting to, to discover what they uh, uncover. Well, classified documents from President Biden's tenure as vice president discovered at his think tank's office are under review by a U.S. attorney in Chicago. Attorney General Merrick Garland charged the U.S. attorney with investigating the records, which were located in the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in Washington, D.C. Two sources aware of the situation uh, said, well, the roughly 10 documents were found at the think tank's Biden vice presidential office in early November Right before the election, in fact, when Biden's lawyers were packing files uh, housed in a, a locked closet to prepare to vacate the office space at the Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C. The FBI is reportedly engaged in the investigation. CBS confirmed the National Archives has since acquired the confidential materials. Now, questions are being raised as to when they knew it, why it wasn't uh, made public before the election and uh, who had access to those documents. So there will be if most certainly some back and forth. Uh, comparing what's happening now with the uh, probe into documents held by the former president, Donald Trump. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media giants are intentionally hooking vulnerable children on their platforms and flooding them with harmful and exploitive content. That's according to a new lawsuit by Seattle public school leaders that accuses the tech companies of creating a youth mental health crisis in the state of Washington and elsewhere. Well, the 92 page lawsuit filed on Friday in U.S. District Court alleges that Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok and Snapchat have successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of youth, hooking tens of millions of students across the country into positive feedback loops of excessive use and abuse of defendants' social media platforms. Well, the tech giants have built features to maximize users' time on their sites, and they use complex algorithms, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to exploit the neurophysiology of the brain's reward system to keep users coming back coming back frequently and staying on the respective platforms for as long as possible. Well, the lawsuit alleges that school districts in Seattle and across the country are uniquely harmed by the current youth mental health crisis because schools are one of the main providers of mental health services for school-aged children. Well, school districts have had to hire additional mental health staff, develop new mental health resources, train teachers to help students with their mental health, increase disciplinary services and repair property damage by students struggling with their mental health, according to the lawsuit. Well, the novel suit also seeks to get around an unexpected defense of fail of um, falling back on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act which protects Internet platforms from being held liable for content posted by users. 
Well, the plaintiffs say they're not attempting to hold the companies liable for what uh, third parties have said on their platforms, but instead for how they operate the platforms. Section 230, the lawsuit states, is no shield for defendants' own acts of designing, marketing, and operating social media platforms that are harmful to use. Now, this is certainly a novel um, lawsuit. Now, whether or not they have standing is yet to be established either. Well, the lawsuit cites academic studies that have linked social media use to increased adolescent depression, anxiety, suicide attempts, eating disorders, cyberbullying, sleep deprivation. Defendants exacerbate the disruption of sleep by sending push notifications and emails either at night when children should be sleeping or during school hours when they should be studying thereby prompting students to re-engage with defendants' platforms at times when using them is harmful to their health and well-being, the lawsuit states. It also claims that while Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, does not technically allow preteens to create accounts, it knowingly lacks effective age verification protocols. Snapchat, according to the suit, targets a younger audience and has been intentionally designed in a manner that older individuals find hard to use. YouTube has pitched itself to advertisers as the favorite website for kids 2 to 12 and the new Saturday morning cartoons, the lawsuit uh, states. YouTube has not implemented even rudimentary protocols to verify the age of users. Anyone can watch a video on YouTube without registering an account or reporting their age, the lawsuit states. YouTube's algorithms push its younger users down rabbit holes where they're likely to encounter content that is violent, sexual, or encourages self-harm, among other types of harmful content. Well, from 2009 to 2019, Seattle Public Schools saw an average of 30% increase in the number of students who reported feeling so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that uh, they stopped doing some unusual, started doing some unusual activities and stop doing some usual activities. The pandemic and corresponding increase in time youth spend on defendants' platforms have intensified the crisis. In his State of the Union address in um, March, President Biden called for holding social media companies accountable for the national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. Well, Meta and TikTok did not respond to a request for comment from uh, the uh, lawsuit. Google, the owner of YouTube and Snap, Uh, The owner of Snapchat uh, told the Associated Press that they have worked to protect young people who use the platforms. Uh, Snap uh, launched an in-app support system to help users experience them uh, experiencing a mental health, emotional crisis, find expert resources. And they've uh, uh, tried to allow parents to see who their children are contacting on Snapchat, according to the AP. Well, the lawsuit is calling for the social media giant's conduct to be considered a public nuisance under the Washington law for an order requiring them to abate the public nuisance, for them to jointly and uh, severely, uh, severally liable, actual and compensatory damages, and equitable relief to fund prevention, education, and treatment for excessive and problematic use of social media. It is a novel lawsuit. It's not likely to succeed. Um, glow, uh, glaringly absent from the suit is any mention of parents and the role they might play in the habits and use of social media by their children. Well, let's make a deal. One GOP holdout revealed what he received in exchange for giving his vote to McCarthy for speaker. Representative Byron Donalds uh, revealed on Sunday that he's being placed on the House Republican Steering Committee in exchange for supporting Kevin McCarthy for House Speaker. He revealed the new appointment during a Sunday appearance on Sunday Morning Futures with 
uh, Maria Bartiromo. On the greatest geopolitical threat, Representative Donald says Speaker McCarthy and the GOP will probe the Chinese Communist Party's influence on the U.S. And Democrats seem to agree. Saying he doesn't care, RNC Chair McDaniel uh, blasts President Biden's photo op at the southern border. Representative Jordan looks ahead, saying cuts to military spending should be on the table. His money should not go to woke policies. Making no excuses, progressive representative Khanna uh, says he agrees with Justice Gorsuch on Title 42 ahead of the president's first border visit and following. Part of the depravity, the Washington Post is being slammed by critics for minimizing pedophilia. There's a pattern forming here. Huge problem for him. The Biden administration's messaging on the border has been really bad, according to a CNN panelist. When CNN is uh, criticizing the president, he's got problems. Inspired by Ukraine, Taiwan is looking to up its military readiness as the China threat looms. Hitting the road, Kirk Cameron is taking his message of faith, freedom and family all across the country. And uh, deafening silence, President Biden ignored questions on why classified documents were found at his think tank. He did today in his press conference with the uh, Three Amigos, as it's being uh, called, his visit uh, to uh, Mexico with the prime minister from Canada. He did make some reference to it. Charging they overplayed their hand, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, says Democrats overplayed their hand in the handling of the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago in light of new revelations of classified documents discovered at the Penn Biden Center, which were taken by now President Joe Biden after his time as vice president nearly six years ago. Disappointing. Allergists are warning big food brands are adding major a major allergen in shortcut. Sesame seeds may be hazardous to your health. Back to back, Georgia destroys TCU for the second straight college football national championship. It was painful to watch, although kind of exciting too. border blinders. President Biden appears to avoid parts of the President uh, Trump built wall during his visit and in his sights, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy followed through with his promise after taking the speaker's gap, uh, gavel. The House voted on a bill Monday night that would cut more than 70 billion dollars in Internal Revenue Service funding in an effort to prevent the agency from conducting new audits on Americans. Calling it a cruel crisis, a left wing group attacked President's uh, dangerous immigration policy and on a, uh, no, uh, a nonsense conclusion The Washington Post is being torched for a piece linking domestic violence to climate change. Calling out think tank frauds, Musk weighs in on the most deranged and unhinged conspiracy theories spread by mainstream media. And GOP Latina Congresswoman blasted MSNBC for an opinion piece calling her a white supremacist ally, which typically translates, you don't agree with me. We're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. We'll continue for one more segment looking at the news. And in the second hour, a conversation with Erwin Lutzer, Dr. Lutzer, author of No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue in this segment looking at some of the headlines from the last couple of days and then a conversation with Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer is the author of No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. And in our final segment, we'll look back at Jack Hayford and his life in ministry. He died on Sunday at 88. 
Well, Jesse Waters points out that President Biden didn't see the border crisis we've been seeing for the last two years. Things were pretty much cleaned up, calling the church's church rather a source of anxiety. Multiple women have sued a Christian organization for alleged abuse and cover up. Five in California have filed a lawsuit alleging that the non-denominational Christian organization covered up instances of sexual abuse of children and exerted financial pressure on members to the extent that some took their own lives. They allege the International Churches of Christ and affiliated organizations indoctrinated them and isolated them while exploiting them and manipulating them through a strict belief system. DeMar Hamlin supported his team from his hospital bed, saying, God is using me in a different way today. Uh, recovering uh, Buffalo Bills safety. He shared a a game of uh, a game day message rather for his team just hours before they were set to play the New England Patriots in their first game since his terrifying injury. Uh, Nothing I want more than to be running out that tunnel with my brothers. God's using me in a different way today. Tell someone you love them today. One reporter said, what a powerful sight. All Titans and Jags players praying together with Damar Hamlin before the game. Hmm. I wonder how God will use this situation of this God-fearing young man. Christy Nome is demanding accountability after the federal government has leaked her and her family's Social Security numbers. The South Dakota governor uh, is demanding answers on her on how federal agencies allowed her personal information to become public in the aftermath of records releases from the January 6th committee, as well as how these agencies plan to combat the potential results of that leak. The Oregon Education Department wants schools to hide the gender identities of students from their parents while teaching queer theory. A guide published by the Oregon Public Education encourages schools to hide students' gender identity from their parents. In the 48-page document, the guide tells students to hide their gender identity from their parents as well as pushes the woke ideology, queer theory, and the idea that a person can be a different gender from what they were biologically born. Titled Supporting Gender Expansive Students, Guidance for Schools explains what to do if students are concerned about their parents finding out about their gender preference. A trans arsonist has been arrested for destroying the 117-year-old church here in Portland. The arsonist that destroyed the church in downtown uh, Portland this uh, last week has become a symbol of disorder in the city. Um, Cameron David Storer, a trans woman also known as Nicolette Fate, was arrested following an investigation by the Portland Fire and Rescue Uh, investigation team. The 27-year-old is charged with two counts of first-degree arson, one count of second-degree arson, and two counts of second-degree burglary, all felonies. According to prosecutors, uh, Storer walked into the Multnomah County Detention Center and confessed to setting the church on fire using a lighter. The Southwest Airlines holiday collapse could cost up to $825 million. After one of the largest meltdowns in airline history, Southwest Airlines has shared that the issues it faced over the holidays will cost the company upwards of $825 million. More than 16,700 flights were canceled, including James Blinn's flight to Disneyland during one of the busiest times to fly. And after the airline processed passengers' refunds and upgrades its scheduling software, it's expected to take a heavy loss. Former Trump advisor John Bolton has confirmed a 2024 presidential run. Really? Do we have to talk about that now? Well, former Trump national security advisor, at least for a minute, John Bolton, this week confirmed that he will be mounting a 2024 presidential build, a bid rather, one meant to in part to prevent former President Donald Trump himself from once again claiming the White House. President Biden laid the groundwork for his 2024 reelection campaign as well. 
The president's reelection campaign is preparing to launch after months of will he or won't he. Biden and his senior aides are readying the details around his 2024 campaign. Multiple sources tell The Hill the president is planning to make his intentions to run for a second White House uh, term public in the coming weeks, likely in February around the State of the Union. One source close to Biden's 2020 campaign with knowledge of the president's plan said a more formal announcement is expected in April. China has removed travel restrictions. Tens of thousands of travelers began to fly in and out of mainland China on Sunday as Beijing removed almost all of its border restrictions, bringing an end to pandemic measures that effectively sealed off the world's most populous nation from the rest of the world. Republicans are preparing a subcommittee to look into keeping federal agencies accountable for overreach. And federal agencies are looking into banning gas stoves. Over my spatula, they will. A federal agency may look to ban gas stoves over concern about the release of pollutants that can cause health and respiratory problems, according to a new report. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is set to open public comment on the dangers of gas stoves sometime this winter. The commission could set standards on emissions from uh, the gas stoves or even look to ban the manufacture or import of appliances, according to the commissioner. An overwhelming majority of Americans are scared or angry with the direction the country has taken only for um, vastly different reasons. Since President Biden took office, several polls have shown that Americans are concerned about the direction of the country under his leadership. Of course, that was probably true under the previous administration as well. As a result, Biden's overall job approval rating has been underwater. Now, as issues like inflation and the border crisis continue to worsen, most Americans say they do not feel optimistic about the direction of the country in 2023. Americans um, went vastly beyond rather their means for the holiday season. Uh, Record spending during the holiday season coincided with many American households making expenditures using record amounts of debt, though a slightly lower portion of Americans um, took on the holiday debt at the end of last year. The average amount of debt among those who spent beyond their means rose one thousand five hundred and forty nine dollars, marking a 24 percent increase from the previous year. The percentage of debtors who expect to take five months or more to pay off their debt rose from 28 to 27 percent. Of course, inflation played a role in that as well. Now, let's see here. An appeals court struck down the Trump era ban on bump stocks. Facebook has been hit with more than four hundred million dollars in fines for privacy violations. El Paso residents were fuming at uh, President Biden while the city scrambled to clear migrant encampments. And the administration admits it killed 59,000 jobs by canceling the Keystone Pipeline. Six years later, the Washington Post is being blasted for reporting Russian trolls had little influence on the 2016 election. Morgan Stanley warns U.S. stocks uh, rose 22 percent in a slump, or rather risk 22 percent slump. And a Chicago public schools report reveals that over 600 cases of staff grooming and sexually assaulting students in Chicago, over 600 cases. God help us. Well, on this day in history, 1776, Thomas Paine anonymously publishes his influential pamphlet, Common Sense, which argues for American independence from British rule. 1920, the League of Nations takes effect, established as the Treaty of Versailles, ending World War I. 1946, the first General Assembly of the United Nations convenes in London. 
1946, the first man-made contact with the moon is made as radar signals transmitted by the U.S. Army Signal Corps are bounced off the lunar surface. 1967, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, in his State of the Union address, asked Congress to impose a surcharge on both corporate and individual income taxes to help pay for his Great Society programs, as well as the war in Vietnam. 1994, President Bill Clinton, attending a NATO summit meeting in Brussels, announces completion of an agreement to remove all long-range missiles from the former Soviet Union. Well, there's more, but time has slipped away. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show conversation with the Irwin Lutzer coming up next. No reason to hide standing for Christ in a collapsing culture. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest asked the question, will you be complicit, complacent or courageous? I'm speaking to believers. Well, the best-selling author, Dr. Irwin Lutzer, is the author of No Reason to Hide, and he examines the toxic roots behind the alarming symptoms of a culture in spiritual freefall. Identify how you can respond to the battleground issues of today that include identity-driven social justice ideologies that divide rather than unite, cultural attacks on sex and gender, progressive pushes within the church that obscure and uh, desecrate the, the Bible's teachings. Well, the book is a rallying reminder that Christians must have the courage to proclaim Scripture's truth to a culture in desperate need of what only God can provide. I'm so delighted to have uh, Dr. Lutzer with us. He is a pastor emeritus of Moody Church, where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years. He is an award-winning author of many books, including We Will Not Be Silenced, one of my favorites, and the featured speaker on uh, three teaching programs that are heard on more than 1,000 national and international radio outlets. He and his wife, Rebecca, have three grown children, eight great-grandchildren, or I should say grandchildren, in the Chicago area, and we are delighted once again to have Dr. Dr. Lutzer with us here today. Welcome back. So glad to be with you again, Georgine. And yes, thank you for making that correction. It actually is eight grandchildren and not <laughs> eight great grandchildren. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, we've just finished an election, and some people um, believe that the outcome of that election would uh, result in the end of democracy as we know it. Uh, their life and future is bound by what the outcome might uh, might uh, produce in the days ahead. First of all, can I invite you to comment on this election? And from a Christian perspective, how should we view the outcomes, some of which we might agree with, some of which we are concerned about? Well, first of all, let me say it's very obvious that the predicted red wave did not happen. The other thing I think that's going to happen is I think that the results, because they are so mixed, and in many ways undecided, even at this moment, I think it's going to embolden leftists who really feel that they are on the right side of history. You know, when you look at the trends, you notice that abortion was a huge issue. And uh, you think, for example, of here in Illinois, I'm commenting, our schools are sexualizing children Mm -hmm. in ways that are very destructive, And yet at the same time, the party that is in favor of that and pushes that won big. So that's where we are at today in the culture. But this is what I want to emphasize, Georgine, and that is that what this does is it reminds the church that it is not built upon the American Constitution, remarkable document though it is, it is really built upon Christ. 
And we're going to have to realize that we can no longer look at supports that have been a part of American culture for so many years. We're going to have to go back to the basics and stand with Christ against the culture. In the book you referenced, No Reason to Hide, I make the statement that evil never retreats unless it is um, forced to by a greater power. And that greater power is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must rethink the role of the church. We recognize that we are indeed in a collapsing culture. And by the way, we didn't seek this culture war. The culture war has come to us. That's why when I wrote this book, I looked at all the pressure points that the church is facing, whether or not it's from the culture, from cultural Marxism. Two chapters involve racial issues because I believe so deeply that the Bible has the answer to that, which is being ignored. And um, propaganda, you know, the sexualization of our children, all of these kinds of topics are dealt with in the book. There are a number of ways that the Christian community, the Christian, might respond to these issues to simply retreat, acknowledge that the world is spiraling out of control and, and wait for Jesus to come to stand firm and confront the culture. And I'm not talking about political campaigns, although it, there may be some role for that. Um, what do you suggest that Christians ought to consider in view of what we are witnessing? What is our role in this uh, this deconstruction of uh, morality in our country? Well, you know, every Christian is going to have to answer that differently. But like I am, uh, like I like to emphasize, uh, you know, the culture war is coming to us. I don't think it can be avoided. Our churches can pretend that it's not happening. They can avoid it. But the people who are listening to us right now, whose children go to school, who get up every day, every morning and go to work in their workforce, in law and in education, no matter where they find themselves, they are up against the culture. Now, specifically in answer to your question, it is difficult for me to have a one size fits all Mm -hmm. answer. The businessman will have to think about whether he is uh, forced to compromise and make a decision that indicates his loyalty to Christ. If you're in the realm of law, if you're in the realm of education, for example, there's a school in Missouri, a Christian school that has filed a lawsuit against the federal government because the government is beginning to say that trans students must be given equal rights. Well, what does this mean? Uh, How would you like it if you send your daughter to a Christian school and she is told that her roommate was born Bert, but now he goes with Bernice, and he needs or she needs, as the case may be, uh, the same kind of rights. So what you find is not just that light is being considered to be darkness and darkness light, but it is being imposed upon us. So a school administrator, the board of a school is going to have to think through where they draw the line. The businessman will, the parent who is sending his child to a school, all of us in our own sphere have to think through what our response to the collapsing culture really is. 
And that's the challenge for each of us to be led by the spirit, to be in the word, to determine, God, what are you calling me to do in response to the specific challenges that I'm facing? I think, please go ahead. Exactly. And uh, what we must do is to seek the face of the Lord and recognize that it is indeed a spiritual battle. But I wrote the book that you're referencing, and thank you so much for having me on this evening. I wrote the book to help Christians answer questions like this. What do parents say if a child comes to them and says, I think I'm trans? How do we handle that? How do we handle the issue of propaganda or even the issue of race where critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus died to bring together? These are questions that the church can no longer ignore. I know for many, um, many parents, the temptation is to um, shrink back when there's intimidation and there's a cost associated with standing on truth. What do you, what do you say to those who are loath to pay the cost um, that may lose them their business or may mean that they can no longer serve as an educator uh, they may have to withdraw a student from uh, an education system uh, that would force a, a worldview uh, and practice on students that conflict with a biblical worldview. Well, you know, I want to just punt the ball to what happened in Germany. I was in East Germany, which was under communist rule for many, many years. A pastor there told me that 15% only of the German Christians stood up to communism. The communists said, if you want a job, if you want your kids to go to school, you have to stop going to church, you have to become a member of the party. Most, 85%, submitted. 15 didn't. 15%. Now, you know, these families struggle terribly But if you back off, first of all, they did see God's faithfulness in the midst of their obedience, which is something we have to learn. But if you back off and ask yourself the question, in a hundred years, what family made the wisest decision? I think we'd all agree it's the 15%. I mentioned that in answer to your question. The time is coming when, of course, jobs are at stake, opportunities are at stake, But you know what the culture responds to? It really does, or believers respond to one believer being willing to roll up the flag to the top of the pole, uh, a Christian flag, and then suddenly you discover there are all these other people who are joining because they needed somebody to be the hero to do it first. So I'd encourage people listening and ask Are you willing to do what you need to do to be faithful to Christ? Because when you do, you might be surprised at the number of people who come and stand with you. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. His latest book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, in which he does provide tools to think through and then navigate through a culture that is collapsing but is also Um, producing pressure that some of us are not prepared for. We want to honor Christ, and how do we do that? This is a great book to help us uh, to understand. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he says that politics can't be separated from morality, and morality cannot be separated from Christianity. He's the author of the best-selling We Will Not Be Silenced, and as uh, charged issues like abortion rights and LGBTQ advocacy divide America, the church must choose between counter-biblical complacency and cultural condemnation. Will we interpret Scripture through the lens of culture, or will we critique the culture through the lens of Scripture? Dr. Lutzer hopes that uh, to equip Christians to choose the latter. His latest book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. We begin by answering the question, um, whom you will serve uh, in the, the challenging culture that we find ourselves in. This is a very serious que- question. I think a lot of us would just say, well, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. But uh, answering that question um, that, as you point out in the uh, uh, first chapter, in which you reference Joshua 24, 14 through 15, choosing who we're going to serve um, and standing firm there is the beginning of dealing with and confronting the, the issues that challenge our culture today. Yeah, you know, for example, here in Chicago, a school teacher in the public school told me he was told that if he doesn't, it is not enough that he simply tolerates same-sex marriage. He was told if you don't celebrate it, you could lose your job. All right, now there's a line in the sand. You know, a, a follower of Jesus cannot celebrate what God has condemned. Now, let's suppose he loses his job. Is the rest of the church going to come around and say, you know, we're going to help you during this period of transition? You have a wife and children that you need to take care of. We're going to be here for you. I think that the collapsing culture is even going to have to make us rethink what the church is all about. You know, my wife and I have been to communist countries uh, such as and so forth. We were actually in China many, many, many years ago. One of the things that you find there is Christians really do hang together. They support one another. They get things for one another because they know that survival is at stake. We've not had to do that in America, but we may have to begin to do that, and I think we do, because we can no longer depend upon the supports that we always thought would be ours. Take, for example, just the simple issue of freedom of religion. It is under attack in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I point this out in a chapter that I have in the book on uh, the topic of propaganda. It's um, really uh, compromised, that is to say, freedom of religion is compromised because of the misuse of words. For example, you have a good word, equality. You have a good word, justice, which is found frequently in the Bible. And God says, what does the Lord your God require but to do justice? But today, it's reinterpreted. So we have such things as economic justice, which is, of course, socialism. You have marriage justice, which is same-sex marriage. You have... um, environmental justice. So what we've done is we've created a culture where freedom now is interpreted in ways that actually compromise freedom of religion. The same could be said for the word equality, a very good word, but today we attach it to whatever agenda the culture wants to attend uh, to. Now, I hope I'm being clear here by saying What's happening is this, 
we need to make choices. We need to think through the issues. We need to be able to answer our children when they come home and say that I think I'm trans. We need to equip the church for the collapsing culture. You have a chapter in which you begin with the question, will we be deceived by the language used by the propagandist? You gave some examples just then in which you attach words that we would all embrace to um, objects that we cannot embrace. And you write that truth is never welcome in a pagan world. And I think that's something that we wrestle with. We assume that if we can make the case that um, using truth, that it will be embraced. But that's that's not the case. How do we navigate in a uh, in a culture in which truth is whatever we make it out to be? It's it's relative to my position on a particular issue at a given time. First of all, let me say that the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that uh, even when confronted with a mountain of contrary evidence, they will not change their minds. And in that chapter, I show how language is pressed into service to bring that about. But in answer to your question, I want to, first of all, quote the words of Booker T. Washington, real wisdom. He said, Evil doesn't become good and wrong doesn't become right just because the majority believe it to be so. So what we have to do is to help this culture to understand that you cannot have my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. We cannot do that. We cannot exist because all of our, quote, truths collapse and they contradict each other. What we must be willing to do is to step back and say, look, this culture is irrational. Everybody knows, for example, that uh, men can't have babies, too. In fact, George Orwell, in his book, talked about how somebody was taken, Winston was taken into a room and taught that two plus two is equal to five. Sometimes it's equal to three. The purpose is to get him used to living with lies. So the best that we can do, George Ann, is to expose the lies and say, we will not live by lies. We're going to expose them, and we're going to help people to see that there is truth that exists outside of us. And there is actually somebody who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So... It's important for us to be able to confront these issues, to think them through, and to respond accordingly. There's so much in your book that we don't have time to cover, but I would highly recommend it. H.B. Uh, Charles Jr. said that there are few voices in our day that are as clear and courageous as Lutzer's, and I would wholeheartedly agree. The book is titled No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. If you want to be equipped, if you want to refine your commitment and your resolve to honor Christ and to stand on truth, this is an excellent volume to help you do just that in the uh, shifting sands of our culture. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today. Thank you so much. God bless. And of course, the book is available on Amazon. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I learned today that Jack Hayford, the Pentecostal pastor who wrote Majesty, the four four square leader, who put an emphasis on praise and penned the most popular church song of the 1990s, has died at 88. 
I hadn't seen or heard from him for quite some time, and I actually thought he had already gone home to his reward. But Jack Hayford, the Foursquare Church leader who taught evangelicals that God is enthroned in the praises of his people, died on Sunday. As I mentioned, he was 88. He was a longtime pastor of the church on the way in Van Nuys, California, the author of Majesty and more than 500 other praise and worship songs, and the fourth president of the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. He regularly led week-long seminars for pastors that expect and shaped evangelicals' view of worship, and he convinced a wide range of people to occasionally raise their hands while praying and accept um, and rather to see worship as central to the work of the church. Worship has often been misunderstood as the musical prelude, he once wrote, rather than the means by which we as the people of God invite the dominion of his kingdom to be established on earth. Psalm 22, 3 says that the king of kings is literally enthroned on the praises of his people. Wherever God's people come together to worship, we become a habitation for his presence, end quote. Well, he was a Pentecostal bridge builder and a pastor to pastors who did much to promote charismatic renewal practices. Even people who had historically been skeptical of Pentecostalism were drawn to Hayford. Lloyd Ogilvie, a Presbyterian minister who worked closely with uh, uh, with Jack Hayford, said in 1989, I think pastors uh, sense in him what they are longing to be. He is rooted in historic Christianity, has the fire and dynamism of a charismatic, understands the relevance of social responsibility and can mobilize individuals. You don't usually find those qualities combined in one person. Christianity Today once billed him as the Pentecostal gold standard, citing Charisma Media founder Stephen Strang, who said Pastor Jack, who uh, would would fall rather into a category of statesman uh, without peer. Well, his parents weren't Christians and didn't turn to prayer when infant Jack developed a condition in the uh, tendons of his neck, then it could have been fatal. Farnsworth cousin, however, uh, walked into a four square church in Long Beach, California, knowing that Pentecostal denomination founded by Amy Semple McPherson believed in miracles and that one of the four squares of the gospel that the church taught was healing. He took that seriously. The cousin gave the church a note with Hayford's name and diagnosis and asked the people to pray. They said they would and apparently they did. Hayford said that sharing his testimony some 80 years later, the next day my parents began to notice that things had changed. Within the next few days, the doctor said, this boy is well. There is nothing wrong with him. And not only did the doctor declare me well, he refused to take the money from my parents for the few payments he was uh, going to charge because he said, I had nothing to do with the healing of this baby. This has to have been done. It has to have been something that God did. Hayford's parents praised God for the healing, and a year later, they went to the same church and went forward to accept Jesus as the congregation sang, whoever will may come. Well, they didn't stay with the church, and that's a whole nother story. But Jack Hayford uh, personally accepted Christ when he was age 10. He discerned a call of ministry in high school, but doubted his call as his teachers uh, pushed him to go to the state school to study science or journalism or both. Well, at uh, the last moment, with encouragement from a Lutheran uh, teacher, Hayford decided to go to Bible school instead of a state college. He returned to Southern California and enrolled at the Foursquare Church Life Bible College. He met and married his wife, Anna Smith, who predeceased him. She met him at college, or rather he met her. 
Uh, both became ministers at the Foursquare Church and worked with the National Denominations Youth Department until 1969 when Hayfords uh, became pastors of a congregation in Van Nuys. The church had been one of the first Foursquare churches, by, but by the late 60s, it was dwindling that could only claim regular attendance of about 25. The place felt suffocating, Hayford said, and he wondered for a while if he had uh, made a terrible mistake. Then he was moved to clean the church with praise. So that's what he did. He spent a year going through the church, simply praying and praising. Uh, In a history of contemporary praise and worship, scholars Lester Ruth and Lim C. Hong say that Hayford became the most well-known teacher of praise and worship theology and practice, introducing many to the Pentecostal liturgy that flowed from congregational singing uh, to spoken praise, prayer in spontaneous um, uh, spontaneity, rather. He created small groups and Bible instruction, all aimed at the adoration of God. His ideas about worship uh, may have spread furthest, however, with the most popular song, Majesty. From 1989 to 1994, the song was sung more in American churches than any other, according to the Christian Copyright Licensing International. So it was um, the most popular song. It remained in the top 10 into the early 2000s. Majesty has also been published in 34 hymnals, including Baptist, Anglican, and African Methodist Episcopal publications. So exalt, lift up on high the name of Jesus, the song says. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus the King. Majesty, worship his majesty. Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. Hayford wrote the song while vacationing in England. He and his wife, Anna, visited uh, Blenheim Palace, the birthplace of Winston Churchill. That inspired him to think about the kingdom authority of Christians. He thought about how Jesus came not only to forgive sins, but also to help humanity reestablish its royal relationship with the King of Kings. Well, as a pastor to pastors beyond the Foursquare Church, he also agreed to help restore a number of disgraced men in the ministry. He was part of the team who agreed in 2007 to work with Ted Haggard. Well, that one didn't work out so well, but he was committed. For his part, he cautioned church leaders not to rely too much on formal accountability structures. A fruitful ministry had to be grounded in prayer and fellowship with Jesus, regular Bible study, personal purity, and self-discipline. A minister's relationship to God, he said, was the only true safeguard. Well, Hayford was predeceased by his wife, Anna, who died in 2017. He survived by his second wife, Valerie, and four children, Rebecca, Jack III, Mark, and Christina, The Foursquare Church is planning an online memorial service at some point in the future. Jack Hayford gone on to his reward at 88. want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.